I uh, was able to control myself a little better for the third service. In the first service, I came up here bawling like a baby after that song. I'm saying, guys, that's a preview of heaven, if you guys aren't aware of that. We'll be saying worthy is the lamb for all of eternity, okay? And I remember as a kid, I used to sit next to my dad and worship on Sunday mornings, and I used to be so embarrassed because he sang so loud and he sang so bad. And I would sit there and I'd be like, oh gosh, like I'd just be like hiding. I'm like, dad, you're so loud, crying, all the snot and everything. But now as an adult, I get it. I get it. And I pray that I am just as embarrassing for my boys as he was for me. <laughs> that I, I, I just, oh man, I get it now. To worship like that, oh my word, I love it. I'm excited to bring the word today. I'm gonna pray for us as we get started, if y'all join me. Lord, we... Um, Thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you for your word, Lord, that um, I have the opportunity to bring today. God, I just pray that you would remove all distractions from this room in the name of Jesus, distractions in my head or distractions among the congregation, Lord, that this would be a place of fertile soil in the hearts and minds of your people, and Lord, that your word would take root and change us from the inside out as we study it and dive into it this morning. God, so I, I ask you this in the mighty name of Jesus, that you would accomplish this for your glory. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. So I want to start by thanking Pastor Brad and Pastor Andrew for allowing me to preach this morning. It was Pastor Brad that put me on the schedule originally before the diagnosis came, before we knew any of that was coming. And then it was Pastor Andrew who rearranged it, so the two of them uh, put me on the schedule and made it happen. So I'm very grateful to be here to bring the word this morning. Um, what Brad didn't tell me was I'd be preaching on Revelation, so that's fun. Um, I didn't see that coming, but here we are. Uh, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to continue in our series. We're going through the letters to the seven churches. Today, we're going to be talking about the letter to the church of Pergamum. And I want to start by just thanking the Lord for how he's far he's brought me over the last few years and changed me. I used to be terrified of the end times. I used to be terrified of the book of Revelation. The idea of Jesus coming back was terrifying to me as a kid. Did anyone else have that experience? Okay, a couple of us. That was more than the first two services, which I appreciate. Um, I was all alone in first service. I was the only one. Uh, but it was funny. Joanna, not to call her out, Joanna Sally in the second service was like, raise her hand. I'm like, me and you, girl, we're on a boat on an island, and nobody's with us. Um, so we have some more people to join us on our island. I was terrified of it. Like, I used to sit in bed at night as, like, a 12-year-old, and it transitioned into my teenage years, where I used to just be terrified of the idea that Jesus was coming back. And I, I don't know why, but I used to feel that way. And it transitioned into my adulthood. It didn't just stop, because as an adult, I was just like, Lord, like, are you going to take me with you when you come? And then it became a question of my salvation. Like, I'm just like, Lord, how do I know that I'm going to be going with you? And it was, I'm grateful for what the Lord has done over the last few years because through the word and through the men and women that he's put in my life to speak into me and the friends that I've gained, I'm beginning to realize my identity in Christ and what he says about me and what he thinks of me. And when you know that Christ loves you and wants you to know more of him, then you read the word differently. And these ideas and these scary topics such as revelation aren't as scary anymore when you know that Christ wants to reveal himself to you. So all that being said, 
I'm going to start with another shout out today. This is like shout out number five for the day. So I'm starting with another shout out. I got a picture I'm going to throw up on the screen for you guys. I don't know if, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you saw me share this this week. This is from the Volusia County Public Library. My oldest boy read 1,000 books before kindergarten. And Laney and I are accepting that applause on his behalf because he can't read. So uh, Laney and I read a thousand books with him before kindergarten. Uh, but goodness gracious, I'm, I'm so proud of that dude. And the reason we read is because this dude loves to read. He is not like his father in any manner possible. Dude loves to read. And we used to read the same book over and over and over again and about a thousand times. So... I start by saying this, there is no greater feeling in the world than being proud of your kids. Amen? All my parents and grandparents out there, there's no better feeling. And I shared this at The Way on Wednesday. Um, it's, so, it's a hard transition because I used to have two babies. We got Shepard, he's a year old, and SJ's been a baby. He's not a baby anymore. He's turning four in November. And it's been so weird, that transition between raising babies to now I have a kid and a baby. And... I'm telling you, other than the word of God, parenting has taught me more about the gospel than anything else on the entire planet. Parenting has taught me more about the gospel than anything else. I look at my boy reading a thousand books and I feel like my heart is gonna explode. I'm so proud of the dude. It's even more emotional because I'm pretty sure he's in here right now. But like, where does that feeling come from? Because in Christ, that's how God sees me. And in Christ, that's how God sees each and every one of us in this room that are in Christ. That's how God sees you, like you just read a thousand books before kindergarten. So when you open your Bible, and if you are in Christ and you're opening it to get a word from him, that's how he's looking at you. And so as we read through Revelation, as we read through these challenges to the seven churches, that's how I want us to enter into this today. And that's what I invite you into this morning, as we're going to read the letter to the church of Pergamum. Because if your identity in Christ is sealed in him, he wants to reveal something to you today. Not just today, anytime you open the word. We're going to talk about that in a second. So we're going through the seven churches. We're in Pergamum. This is in verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2, and it's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read those verses for us this morning. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name, and you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So I want to walk through our letter today verse by verse, and I'm going to start in verse 12. Jesus identifies himself as the one with the double-edged sword, and we know this already. This isn't new to us because in Revelation chapter 1, when John has this vision and he sees someone like the Son of Man, he describes him as someone like the Son of Man who has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth in chapter 1. And then that Son of Man later identifies himself at the end of chapter 1 and says that I was dead, but now I'm alive and I hold the keys to death and Hades. 
So this is Jesus revealing himself in Revelation chapter 1, and Jesus is using that same terminology as he's talking to the church of Pergamum when he starts his letter. And we're going to see in a second, and we're going to come back to that and see why that's so significant. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And Christ begins by complimenting them for their faith, and the city is so pagan that Jesus refers to it as the place where Satan lives. And Deltona's pretty bad, but Deltona is not the place where Satan lives. That's a pretty rough accusation to make of a city. Um, it does get pretty hot in Florida, though, so it feels like it sometimes. I'm just saying. Like, I told my therapist, I think, I don't know if this is a thing, I think I have opposite seasonal depression, because in the summers, when I walk outside and it's 100 degrees and it's so humid, you can't even breathe and you just start like sweating immediately, my whole day is ruined, okay? Seven months out of the year, my day is ruined. And like, I hate living down here those seven months and the other five, it's, it's tolerable. It's still not Kentucky, but it's tolerable, okay? So Jesus is commending them for standing Strong in the midst of how evil their community is. History tells us that Pergamum was a hub for Roman emperor worship, that people would come to Pergamum to worship the emperor of Rome as if they were God. That, and also history tells us there was a statue of Zeus in the middle of Pergamum, a statue there dedicated to worship Zeus. And some scholars even speculate that when Jesus says the city where Satan lives, he's referring directly to that statue. Some people claim that's what he's trying to say. And then he says the uh, church of Pergamum even stayed strong when one of their own got martyred. We don't know much about Antipas uh, other than this reference right here, but there was a guy named Antipas in Pergamum who got killed because of his faith in Christ in the church of Pergamum. And Jesus is commending them for it and celebrating with them because even in the midst of that, they didn't lose their faith. So just like the letter in the church to Ephesus, he starts with his congratulations. He starts with this, you guys are doing good, and then he transitions into his rebuke. It's just like when your parents would call you, like would come to your, would call you into their room, like, hey, we need to talk. When you were a teenager, you were in trouble. You knew you were done for. Um, it's still how I feel today when Patty calls me into her office. Um, I don't know if you guys know Patty. She's our church operations manager here at the church, but she's also my mother-in-law. So there's, you know, the dynamic at play there. And so she calls me in her office. She's like, hey, Cody, can you come here for a second? And I know I'm toast immediately. I'm like, yes, mom, I'll come in there. And she's like, so she'll start with the compliment, right? Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're. And then she'll say, but. And I'm like, I knew it. I knew I was in trouble. What did I do this time? Like, I knew it. I knew something was going down. So just liken this to being called into Patty's office, but much worse. Okay, that's what's going on here. So let's look at verses 14 and 15 again. Nevertheless, I have... A few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual morality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus acknowledges that they're staying the course, but there's some among them who are clinging to some false teachings. And the first of which is the teaching of Balaam. Anyone who grew up in Sunday school knows the Balaam and the talking donkey story, right? When you're a kid, a talking donkey is pretty cool, right? So those stories type of, kind of stick with you because that's definitely not normal. 
Uh, so th that takes place in the midst of a three-chapter period in Numbers, chapter 22 through 24, where we see the story of Balaam. And it starts with King Balak, the king of Moab, and he approaches Balaam the prophet and asks if he can curse Israel. So Balaam approaches God, or he goes with, sorry, he goes with Balak to Moab, and on the way to Moab, the donkey story happens. He gets to Moab, and three times, Balak asks Balaam to approach God. And all three times, God tells Balaam, you can't curse Israel. So he looks at Balak, and he says, hey, I can't, I can't curse Israel. God won't let me. So at the end of Numbers 24, it appears that Balaam ends as a hero because he wouldn't bow down to the Moabite king, and instead he chose to obey God and said, hey, if God said I can't curse Israel, I'm not going to do it. But following this incident immediately in chapter 25, we see that there's a plague that takes place in Israel, a plague that kills 24,000 Israelites that takes place because they were worshiping Baal with the Moabite women. So they're offer, offering sacrifices to Baal with the Moabite women. Later on, fast forward a few passages, in Numbers 31, we see that the Israelites are wa waging war against the Midianites, and they kill five of the Midianite kings. And then this is the line that it says at the end of verse 8, after they kill the Midianite kings. They also killed Balaam, son of Baor, with a sword. So at the end of chapter 24, Balaam's a hero, because he refused to curse Israel. He obeyed God instead of the king. Balaam disappears for five chapters. We don't know what happened to Balaam, and then he shows back up dead because Moses had him killed. So what happened? Track with me here. So after Balaam is killed, Moses goes on a rant, and he gets mad at the Israelite army because they spared the Midianite women. They didn't kill the Midianite women. They killed everyone else but left the women. And this is why Moses was mad at them in verse 16 of Numbers 31. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. My own son's not happy with my preaching right now. So we don't know what happened, but at some point between chapter 24 and 31, Balaam turns bad, and he becomes a villain if we were in a Marvel storyline. He turns his back on Israel, and he entices them to fall into the sin that caused the plague that killed 24,000 people in Numbers chapter 25. Okay, so that's the background of Balaam. That background is for you and for me, because the church in Pergamum would have known what Jesus was talking about. When he says you're falling into the sin of Balaam, they would have known what he was referring to. That background is for me and you, so we know what's going on. When Jesus condemns them for following the teachings of Balaam, he transitions into following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He says, you guys are following the Nicolaitans. Pastor Andrew mentioned the Nicolaitans two weeks ago in the letter to Ephesus, but in the letter to Ephesus, it was different. God, or Christ, congratulated the Ephesian church because they hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So he congratulates them for that. In Pergamum, it's the opposite situation. He's condemning them because they follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And in the early church history, they wrote, you know, wrote letters about what the Nicolaitans were. They documented it. And the Nicolaitans were sexually immoral group. They were overindulgent. They told you to just do anything with your body and follow and do whatever you want. And just as Balaam taught Israel to fall into this sin, Jesus is likening the two things. That's why in the NIV it translates verse 15, it says, likewise, you follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He's comparing the two. 
So Jesus directly calls out all their false teachings, and then he follows up with this in verse 16 and 17. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. As I read and studied this letter, this is what stuck out the most to me. Because remember, we mentioned the sword earlier, and here it comes back up again in verse 16, when Christ says that he's going to wage war with the sword of his mouth. And this isn't a new allegory that we see in Scripture. This is all throughout Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4, 12 is a very popular verse many of you might know. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And that's not the only reference to it. In Isaiah 11:4, he prophesies about the root of Jesse that we know is Christ, and he says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Later on in Isaiah, he's talking about in the past tense when the Lord called him to prophesy, he said, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And it keeps going. In Hosea, chapter 6, verse 5, Hosea is prophesying. And this is what God says to Israel through Hosea. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. And then my judgments go forth like the sun. It's so interesting to me that the terminology of the word of God being a sword is all throughout Scripture. And just like he threatens Pergamum that if you don't repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to fight you with the sword of my mouth. That's the same terminology in Hosea when he says, I killed you with the words of my mouth. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says, In the last day, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. But by far, the one that struck me the most was the one in Hosea, as I'm studying all these different passages. These people were alive, but yet God said that he killed them with the sword of his mouth. So what, what does that mean? How does that make sense? For those in Israel who were listening to the words of Hosea who would not repent, this sealed their eternal destiny. As God prophesies to them with the sword and says, repent, and they choose to harden their hearts. And it's like, all right, well, there's your warning. There was my sword coming at you, and you're rejecting it. But for those who would repent, it brought them life. Remember what Christ said after he was going to fight Pergamum with the sword? He said, those who have ears, let them hear. And that is why Scripture is such a big deal for us as believers. That's why Scripture is such a big deal for us here at DAC. Because the word of God afflicts us in our comfortability and in our flesh, but it uplifts us when we need encouragement. The same word that convicted me and caused me to repent of my sin is the same word that encourages me on my hardest days when I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. That's the same word doing both of those things. And that's why I've always been so blown away by John's description of Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Verse 14. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. 
He is the most gracious and compassionate human being to ever walk the face of the planet, but he is also the standard and the barometer by which we determine truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. And I think it's Luke 6, 26. I got more confirmation in the land than I did from Andrew in the first service. Pastor Brad's least favorite book in the whole Bible. Y'all have heard him say this, right? Woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. Luke 6, 26. Pastor Brad will come up here and preach. He says, that's my least favorite verse in the whole Bible. But you know what he says? I still believe it. He's like, whether, whether I like it or not, it doesn't matter. It's the word of God, so I believe it. It was 2018 when I moved down here. Laney and I moved down here. And I, for the first time in my life, I allowed myself to hang around believers who exhibited grace and truth and allowed them to speak and pour into my life. I'd always rejected people like that before because I wanted people to comfort me in my sin and just tell me I was doing a good job. I started hanging around people like Jared, people like Pastor Andrew, like Pastor Juan, like David Duffy, like Daniel Stringer, like these men in our church who I allowed into my life to speak grace and truth to me and as I've walked through life with these folks, they've, they've embodied the life of Christ in our friendship. When I've been down, they've lifted me up. They've shown me grace when I've needed to be shown grace, but they've also cut me down and said hard things whenever I needed to be humbled a little bit. Andrew said a lot more hard things than everyone else, but that's besides the point. <laughs> that's, not, that's not part of this message. It was 2018 when we moved down here very shortly after and I'm sitting here and I'm on that wall and I'm sitting on the wall where I think that's Nina. It's hard to tell with the lights on. And I'm on the wall and Pastor Brad is preaching from this chancel and I heard one of my first Bradisms. There's lots of Bradisms. I heard the first one. Well, it's actually Tozer, so it's him quoting Tozer, but it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Y'all didn't seem very confident in that. I'm gonna tell Brad takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Pastor Brad says that all the time, and he said that while I was sitting on that pew, and he followed it with this, that we have people sitting in this room who have followed Christ for years and have never read the whole Bible from front to back. And I was sitting in that pew, and I said, he's talking to me. He's talking to me. And so I started a one-year Bible plan that same day, and roughly one year later, finished it. And I've done it multiple times since then. And church, I'm here to tell you that it changed my life. As Pastor Brad says, this may be um, First Opinion, Chapter 1, the Gospel According to Cody, but I'm, I am convinced that the double-edged sword that Christ refers to that we find all throughout Scripture, I'm convinced in my mind that that double-edged sword represents this balance of grace and truth. And that the word of God, the paradigm that takes place in the word of God and the double-edged sword is that balance of the two. The grace that is hope for the hopeless, the grace that is justice for those who are treated unjustly, that's grace for those who can't do it themselves, which is every one of us, by the way. But it's also truth to cut us down when we get too high. And it's also truth that is the barometer by which we know what to operate by. And I mentioned a lot of verses about the sword and the word being a sword, but I specifically left one out, and it's in Ephesians 6. Here it is. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of, spirit, of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And sometimes... 
That double-edged sword is what we use to fight off the enemy. It's that double-edged sword that we use to defeat Satan, but it's also the double-edged sword that we use to fight against our flesh. Because when you come to Christ, you have a dying flesh that needs to be redeemed, and sometimes you need to fight it with the Word of God. And I'm telling you, something supernatural takes place when you open the Word of God and you let it operate like a scalpel on your heart. Something supernatural takes place when you do that. And I started this message talking about identity. I'll be vulnerable with you guys. I don't mind sharing it. I shared it at Legacy Camp for everyone who was there last summer. This last year or two, I've been journeying through a lot of mental and emotional and spiritual struggles that I've been working through. I started seeing a therapist who works in Deland. His name is Tim, and he's one of the most phenomenal human beings I've ever met. And God has used that man to change my life. Because I started processing what I'm going through with Tim, and I come, come to him, and I'm struggling, and I'm a wreck, and I'm going through this, and I'm going through that. And every time, he just came back at me with the Word of God and challenged me. Every single time I brought stuff to him, challenged me to submit myself to the Word of God. That's right. Tell him, Shepherd. And so, I, I, so, so he challenged me all the time to submit myself to the Word of God. I'd get out of meeting with a session with Tim, and I'd come to work, and I'd be talking with Andrew, and Andrew would give me the same challenges. He wasn't even in the same room as a dude, challenging me to submit my identity, submit my thoughts, submit my fears, submit my stress under the Word of God. And that Word of God encouraged me and challenged me at the same time. And do you remember what Jesus said to those who were victorious in him? They'll receive the hidden manna, and they'll receive a white stone with their name on it that no one else knows. I talked about our identity in Christ earlier when I showed the picture of that young man that desperately needs a haircut. Laney won't let me cut it. I really wish she would. That boy is my son, and nothing will ever change that. I ain't going anywhere. That's my boy. And other than loving my wife, which is a whole sermon for another day, seeing him succeed and seeing him desire to draw close to me is more satisfying than any other thing on the entire planet. To have my son love me and want to know more of me and to want to spend time with me. And what Laney and I have tried to do to the best of our ability is to embody the word of God in our household and how we raise our boys. And sometimes we suck at it. Just being honest, sometimes we, we suck at it. And God reminds us of where we need to be. And sometimes we knock it out of the park. We have those parenting wins where we get to celebrate and we get to give God the glory and give him the praise. Like, Lord, that really worked out today. Thank God. Thank you. Um, Shepherd slept through the night. Thank you, Lord. Uh, not last night. I'm just saying in general. <laughs> but some, like we lit, we try our hardest to embody this in our household, and sometimes we suck at it. And by we, I mean me, because it's mostly me. Laney does a much better job than I do at embodying it. But you know what I want my boys to see? I want them to see me fail well. I want my boys to see me fail well. And as much as I want to take the word of God and have it embodied into them 
and to lead them and teach them in the word of God. I want them to see what it looks like for their parents to operate out of the word of God in everything they do. It's easy for me to rebuke my son with the word of God and say, hey buddy, like Jesus says this and we're gonna live like this in our household. How much harder is it for me to rebuke myself with that and hold myself to that standard and let him see me hold myself to that standard? So church, I challenge us to fail well today as we leave. That there's gonna be opportunities in your life, there's things that's gonna happen as we leave this room and this is real life, this room is real life, but this room is not a necessarily real life because right now you don't have any problems going on other than listening to me. That's a pretty big problem. But other than that, you don't have any other problems going on right now. But you're going to as soon as you walk out these doors. And I'm challenging us, and as, as Christ challenged Pergamum, that if they had ears to listen, to let this double-edged sword perform surgery on their hearts. So that when you are dealing with things this week, as you leave this room and you deal with stuff, that you fall flat on your face before the Lord with the word of God open and say, I can't do this. And you know what I've learned the last few years? That's right where he wants you. And you'll hear the mo most encouraging words you'll ever hear in your entire life. Yeah, you're right, you can't do this, but he can And he'll be gracious and he'll be long-suffering with you. One of my favorite words to talk about the gospel and what I've seen, I talk about parenting. What I've learned about the Lord over these last couple years is that the Lord is long-suffering. In the King James Version, they translate the word patient. In Galatians 5 and other places, the word patient, they translate as long-suffering. That to be patient is to suffer for a long time. I can guarantee you I've caused the Lord to suffer for a long time putting up with me but he was willing to do it. And the Lord is gracious and he's compassionate and he's slow to get angry and he's filled with unfailing love. But he's also the standard and barometer of truth. And he cuts me down when I get too high sometimes. When I feel like a bad dad sometimes, I might be being a bad dad. That's what our culture doesn't get very well right now. It's like, oh, you're doing a good job. Well, maybe you're not doing a good job. But that's okay. Because in Christ, we can fix that and we can work on that. That's what sanctification is. I just wrote a whole paper on it for my ordination process. That we can take all the things we're struggling with, submit them to Christ and be made more like him and come out better as a result of it. So I just challenge us, church to get into the word of God and to not let that sword be what condemns you and to not, be the, not let that sword of the word be what seals your fate because you didn't want to submit to it and keep to it, but let that sword be what gives you life and submit yourself into it and what Christ says about himself and what he says about you in, your, in his word. So I'm gonna pray for us Pastor Carly and the team are going to come back up here. But my challenge, challenge we issue a lot, get in the word. Starting today, because if you wait till tomorrow, it's probably not going to happen. Get in the word and ask the Lord to perform open heart surgery on you with his word.
that you could have more of him and that you would have access to the hidden manna for all of eternity. You'll have access to manna. The Lord will provide everything you need for all of eternity. And you're going to get a white stone, and it's got your name on it, and ain't nobody else going to know it. Jesus said, if you have ears, listen to that challenge and accept that that's available to you. We you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for your letter to Pergamum. Thank you that it is in our canon, Lord, that we get to study it, we get to read it. It's your words to the church. Lord, I completely forgot to mention, thank you for reminding me. Pastor Brad always challenges us. We have more access to the gospel than any other generation in human history. And he challenges us that we're going to be held accountable for it. If we have more access to the gospel than any other generation in human history, we should be the most sanctified generation in human history. So Lord, shame on us if we don't keep to it, but Lord, we just ask that you would, your Holy Spirit would prick at our hearts and remind us that you're there and you want to show us grace and you want to so, show us compassion and you want to lift us up from the, from the pit that we're in and Lord, you want to love us with truth and remind us that you are truth and you change our lives by your truth and by acknowledging and accepting your truth, we get access to things we don't deserve. Lord, which is eternity with you, praising and worshiping you, screaming, worthy is the lamb 100 billion trillion times for all of eternity. Lord, you are worthy. Thank you that you sent your word. Thank you for the letter to Pergamum, and thank you that it reminds us that your word is a sword and that we need it desperately. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name for your glory. Amen.